Well, while the Queen has been dubbed Queen of the World by a couple of American publications and those half-mast flags on Sydney Harbour Bridge are one sign of her impact here, it is, of course, in her home country of the United Kingdom where feeling is greatest, where the death of this longest-serving monarch is proving so profound. I don't know whether many of you managed to watch BBC coverage last night. I think the ABC took parts of it, but I certainly did. But the various comments and analyses and memories shared were really quite remarkable to hear and read. Um, the the House of Commons uh, commentaries were really something. First from the new Prime Minister, Liz Truss, who, has, you have to say, is not a great uh, giver of rhetoric. And then Boris Johnson, an amazing speech from Boris Johnson and uh, Sir Keir Starmer, the head of the Labor Party, and Harriet Harman too, and Theresa May. It really was quite something to watch. Um, so if you get a chance to listen to some of it, I, I, do, I do encourage it, just for sheer interest stake. And that's where we're going to go now, to the UK on Saturday Extra, to hear from a prominent writer and commentator, Simon Heffer, well known as someone who has charted British social history from the middle of the 19th century up to the present day. Welcome to Australian audiences, Simon Heffer. Well, good morning to you. First, my condolences. I mean, if Boris Johnson is any guide, there really is a sweep of emotion underway, not precisely expected, um, of a very personal nature. Is that how you're sensing it yourself? You don't have to say yes, but I just wondered. Well... It's a bit more complicated, I think. Um, I'll give you an example. I was asked 10 years ago by the BBC if I would write a talk to be given between the Queen's death and her funeral. And I was given a choice. I was told I could either write it then or I could write it when she died. And I said, you know, I've got no possible understanding of how I'm going to feel when she dies, and I'd better do it then. So I sat up half last night writing it. Um, I, I thought when I made that remark to the BBC producer 10 years ago that uh, although the Queen had then reigned for 60 years and uh, I'm younger than that, I, heard, well, I was younger than that then, and I'd never known another monarch, um, that it was going to affect me in a way that I couldn't imagine. And when I heard the news yesterday, I was stunned. Uh, not least because we'd seen her with her new Prime Minister only two days earlier at mm. Balmoral. She looked frail. I mean, she's 96, or she was 96. She had every reason to look frail. But she was up and about. She was looking cheerful. She was engaged. She had all her marbles. And to hear only two days later that she was dead was a hell of a shock. And I think the older the Queen got and the more... Uh, the more she was um, an isolated survivor of her generation, of what we in Britain call the Blitz generation. And, you know, she was 14 and 15 when the Germans were trying to bomb us out of existence. And that generation who came through it were really remarkable. And she took those qualities which she imbibed from her father, George VI, um, right the way through her reign. And it meant that she had an ethic of public service, she always felt that we were all in it together. She had a sense of community. But above all, she had a, a sense of putting other people first. And it's those qualities, I think, that really people focused on when they heard she was dead and thought, my God, we are never going to see someone like that again. 
Well, that's why I think it was so interesting as a form of reflection. And look, I don't want to be diverted by the Boris Johnson speech, but oh dear, if only he'd been able to summon up the sort of discipline (laughs) throughout his own reign that he displayed last night and the sheer sort of power of his observation, let alone the use of the English language, you know, things might have been, she mightn't have had to go through that swearing in ceremony. I mean, it was really quite something to behold. Well, um, some of us, and I would include myself in this, were rather glad that Her Majesty survived two days beyond Boris Johnson and had a different Prime Minister because I think uh, he disgraced the office of Prime Minister when he held it. I don't know how the Queen put up with it. I mean, the Queen, uh, who'd had 14 Prime Ministers, uh, so he was the 14th, um, and had seen you know one or two rough passages in the 70 years that she was monarch, had never encountered someone who, frankly, had just lied to her and who lied to the House of Commons, uh, and who was forced out because of his sheer inability to do his job in a serious statesmanlike fashion. And I think another reason, by the way, for the Queen's enormous popularity, apart from everything else, was that the quality of her politicians, and he embodied this, got worse. They became they became more seedy, more dishonest. And she was just streets ahead of them morally and in every other way. Well, I mean, it was a very, Theresa May made a very funny speech, actually. And she said the one thing she could be sure wouldn't be leaked uh, was um, her audiences with the Queen, which brought the house down, I might add. Um, Yeah. But Theresa May is a very fine woman. And I mean, she wasn't a great prime minister, but she's a woman of absolute integrity and probity. And I imagine she and the Queen really understood each other. Well, look, uh, we might actually go now. I was going to do that later. But we've, uh, there was a marvellous play written by Peter Morgan, who wrote The Crown, who I think sort of repositioned for many of us, even though I know it's, you know, (laughs) theoretically fiction. Um, It was an extraordinary overview and um, really a, a piece piece of art, quite an extraordinary piece of art. But he wrote a play called The Audience, imagining the Queen's uh, audiences that she had once a week, a crucial part of the Prime Minister, any Prime Minister's life and the Queen's life. And here's the official clip brought out by the National Theatre with Helen Mirren playing the Queen. Every Tuesday... The Queen of the United Kingdom has a private audience with her Prime Minister. An unbroken line from Churchill to me. I only ever wanted to be ordinary. Which way do you consider you have failed in that ambition? In this audience, Prime Ministers will fall under your spell. That, of course, was Churchill. Now, what is your... Because that's one of the things, the history of of whom she's met. uh, Allegedly, uh, Harold Wilson was her Um, favourite. Is this, you know, this will become a part of King Charles's uh, routine, won't it? Uh, Do you think it'll be... What what role do you think it's going to play in um, British life? Well, you know, something happened this week in Britain that's never happened before, that we got a new Prime Minister and then two days later got a new sovereign. And normally, I mean, when the Queen became uh, uh, sovereign in 1952, she had Winston Churchill, who'd been in the House of Commons since 1900 and had held virtually every great office of state, uh, to advise her, and she looked up to him and admired him. And it wasn't really, I I think, until um, John Major became Prime Minister in 1990 that she had a Prime Minister who was younger than her, and, I mean, she's old enough to have been Liz Truss's grandmother. 
Um, uh, and uh, so that was going to be a very different relationship. We now have our new king, uh, who is, as we're always being told, the longest-serving apprentice for this job in history, uh, with a, uh, a prime minister who's only got two days more experience of high office than he's got. So um, I think that the king, uh, who is a very capable man and has been much maligned, I think, in terms of his grasp of his duties, we've got a king who I think will be relying on his court and his advisers. He's got some very good people around him. And a prime minister who will be relying very much on her civil service and her advisers. Mm. Uh, because there's no longer this grand old lady uh, in either Buckingham Palace or Windsor or Balmoral for a, 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 a prime minister to go to and say, look, I'm not quite sure how to handle this, ma'am. What do you think I should do? Because she took very seriously her uh, constitutional right to advise. Um, I mean, if a prime minister said he or she was going to do something, it was done. The queen was a constitutional monarch. But I've spoken to former prime ministers and they said, yes, we did ask her for advice because she'd seen it all. Well, indeed, there's, hasn't. Uh, there's, look, there's so many thoughts that flow into one's mind. Um, there's quite an interesting commentary from Anne Toomey, who's a professor of constitutional law here in Sydney. If and when the records in Windsor Castle are eventually opened, it's likely we'll see a Queen who was more politically engaged and interventionist than the public ever imagined. She was very canny in her exercise of power. The magic of the monarchy was keeping the true extent of this invisible to the public eye. Do you think that's right? No, I don't. I really don't. Um, I mean, there have been so many episodes in my lifetime as a as a journalist. And I'm now a professor of history, but I was a journalist for, well, I'm still doing journalism. I've been a journalist for nearly 40 years. And there have been so many instances where one would have thought the Queen would have intervened, and we know that she didn't. Um, for example, uh, at the G7 summit in Great Britain last year, uh, which she attended, one of the last big engagements she did. Um, other members of her family, it was widely reported, notably the Duke of Cambridge, now the, the Prince of Wales, and our new king, were very distressed at the way that Boris Johnson's Prime Minister was behaving, because one or two other heads of government came up to them and said, I'm not wildly happy about the way your Prime Minister speaks to me, and how seriously I think he isn't taking me. And <laughs> this was... Yeah, this, this was That's extraordinary, the isn't it? Cambridge. Yeah, the Duke of Cambridge, we were told, was furious and spoke to his father about it. Um, and it was within the Queen's power to raise the eyebrow. And that's the phrase that was always used if she was displeased by the uh, behaviour of one of her ministers. And um, I'm told she did raise the eyebrow. He did nothing and she left it at that. Uh, now, the sort of Queen that the um, very eminent lady you just quoted um, would have it that we had, would have given him a real smack and said, you don't behave like that. And there, there is no evidence that that ever happened, really, during her reign. Because by the time she was experienced enough to do it, I think she knew that there were other ways of getting her way, if you would like. And the most famous example is in 1986 with Mrs Thatcher when the Queen uh, is quite keen to have sanctions put on South Africa because of apartheid, and Mrs Thatcher thinks the best way to get South Africa to stop being vile in its policies towards black people uh, is to trade with them and try to civilise them by, by that means. 
And the, allegedly, the two of them had a standoff about that, which I believe was pictured in in the largely fictional Crown. Now, I saw the episode of the Crown where that was depicted. I was told very reliably by courtiers at the time that nothing of the sort ever happened. Mm. And now that was a that was the obvious time when when the Queen might have said, you know, because she loved the Commonwealth that she might have said, look, I'm not going to have this. Um, Simon Heffer's my guest, a, a, a prominent social chartist of, uh, and journalist in the UK. Well, one time she most definitely did intervene was the Ireland triumph in 2011 um, when Mary McAleese, the president of Ireland, invited her to Ireland. Her advisers said, don't go, I gather quite emphatically, and she overruled them. And, of course, it was a triumph. She spoke in Irish and I think it was an amazing breakthrough. So that that's one example where she she did stand up for her own sense of herself. And, of course, she must have been, you know, there must have been some dangers in doing that too, physical dangers. Oh, there were. It was very brave of her to go, but it was a wonderful thing. I mean, it's ridiculous that um, Great Britain had such difficult relations with Ireland. You know, we are um, culturally and historically so closely linked. Um, most people, I'm one of them, living in, in England, have Irish blood. Uh, it's mad that there should be any difficulties between the two of us after all this time. And uh, I think the Queen felt that very strongly. But look, she would only have gone to Ireland with the approval of David Cameron, who was then her Prime Minister. It may be that he initially said, look, ma'am, there are difficulties and you know, you're know 85 years old and something horrible would happen to you. And she may have said to him, well, Mr Cameron, that's my problem, not yours. Mm. Uh, I want to go. And he had to give his permission. It's just the same as had she come to Australia or you know, when uh, the new king comes to Australia, if Mr Albanese says to him, Your Majesty, I would rather you didn't do this, um, then the king will do what Mr Albanese wants him to do. Uh, he won't say, no, look, I'm doing what I jolly well want because I'm king and you're not. It's not how it works. Look, one of the things that makes it a, a, a question for beyond Britain, I think, is that um, the Washington Post wrote, David Von Drehle wrote, that... Um, the, as Queen, Elizabeth symbolised something in short supply throughout the West, unity. She was not of any party or faction. She was not of the left, of the right. She was not of the north, of the south. Now, she was a very wealthy woman, of course, it has to be said. But that that question of uh, symbolising um, a synthesis... Now, I just wonder w- how you think that is going to... Um, play out in this next stage where you, I mean, you've got a man sitting, the Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, <laughs> has written a, 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 quite a well-regarded book uh, crit- critiquing the very empire that produced him there. So you've got this amazing changes underway, haven't you, in the UK, which now the new king has got to preside over. Yeah, I mean, I know Kwasi Kwarteng. He's an immensely gifted man, and it's a very good book that he wrote. But it's also a book that says, actually, there were quite a few things about the British Empire that were rather laudable. Um, so uh, I, I wouldn't overstress that. The Queen was very good at bringing unity, precisely because she never expressed a political opinion. And uh, I don't imagine that King Charles will ever express a political opinion. Well, he I think says he won't that. from now on, but it'll be quite a change of pace for him if he can... <laughs> managed to keep his mouth shut on these things. Yes, although he, if you look back at his record, um, I mean, it depends how you define the adjective political. I don't think he's ever expressed a political opinion. He's expressed cultural opinions and social opinions, uh, which others have chosen to interpret politically. Uh, I think he will be very careful to avoid certain subjects now, but um, I don't see what would be wrong with him getting up and saying he doesn't like a certain building. 
uh, or um, mm. you know he doesn't or he doesn't like um, uh, you know one or two other things. If he gets into environmental policy, that could be difficult because he's got very strong feelings about that. But you see, that's an example of what I'm saying. He doesn't. He hasn't really talked about climate change and other issues such as that in any depth for seven or eight years because he knew that the time was coming. Look, I want to quote to you from Simon Sharma, who um, wrote quite interestingly yesterday. The lo- he tweeted this, The loss of empire often breeds demons. Witness the end of imperial Germany and Putin's obsession with imperial resurrection. There were terrible things as the British Empire crumbled, but that it didn't breed fascism was in some degree due to the Queen's belief in the Commonwealth. I wonder what you think of that view. I think it's a very intelligent thing for um, Simon Sharma to have written. Um, the Queen, I mean, one of the great things about our Queen, whatever else, or our, our late Queen, uh, was that she was in the forefront of what we now call anti-racism. And, you know, there were people in, in this country, as I believe there might have been in Australia, who took a very ignorant and ill-informed view of um, different races. And the Queen was absolutely at the forefront, long before it was fashionable, of treating everybody equally, of regarding everybody from the Commonwealth, from white countries such as Australia, from black countries such as those in Africa, uh, as being absolutely the same and equal and having equal rights within the institution and equal rights within the world. And I think her leadership was vital in that because she would have stamped um, on any suggestion that there was any sort of difference of any sort between uh, the the the, uh, the countries in the Commonwealth that were settled by white people and the countries in the Commonwealth that were run in independence by black people. Mm. And uh, I, I think that's a good point for Simon Sharma to have made. Um, and I suppose it leads into this notion of... Um what lies next for the UK? Because as Sharma's also noted, the previous two longest serving monarchs, Elizabeth I and George III, they also um, presided over big setbacks to British pride, but they also presided over real growth and expansion, whereas her reign has been marked by national contraction. And you could even say, as some do, uh, not just an Australian, a slow, inexorable decline. Now, do you agree that this definitely adds to the unease that the economist noted amidst all the effort to mask uncertainty and, and emotion, um, that there is an unease at the moment in the UK? Well, there's an unease because of Scotland. Uh, there's no chance of Wales leaving the United Kingdom. And at the moment, there's no chance of Northern Ireland leaving the United Kingdom, despite difficulties since Brexit. But there's a very strong nationalist movement in Scotland. Uh, the Scottish National Party controls Scotland in the Scottish Assembly. Um, and uh, Nicola Sturgeon, the First Minister of Scotland, has said that she is determined to table uh, a bill in the Scottish Assembly to enable a referendum to take place on um, independence. Now, the Supreme Court of Great Britain has got to give her permission to do that, and it almost certainly won't. Uh, because it's quite clear in our law that such an initiative has to come from Westminster. Also, um, Scotland is not performing well. It's got the worst education system, more or less, in Europe. It's got the highest rate per capita of drug addiction in Europe. It's got a terrible law and order problem. Its health service is virtually on a state of collapse. Nicola Sturgeon will do very well to win the next uh, Scottish election, I think she's going to have an awful lot of her work cut out to try and keep her head above water in Scotland. And I think the whole threat 
of um, Scottish nationalism and the, 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 the rupture of the United Kingdom that that would entail is going to be kicked into the long grass for quite a few years. Also, you know, with the, the Queen died at Balmoral. Her son, the new king, was there with her when she died. They have a long record of um, love of Scotland, of living in Scotland, of spending a lot of time in Scotland. But whatever else, again, our royal family can be accused of, paying attention to the Scots is not one of them. The Queen had more kings of Scotland in her lineage than she had kings of England, and the same is true of her son. Mm. So you know, th these are people who feel deeply Scottish. Right. Well, Simon, look, thank you very much indeed for staying up late. I do appreciate it, and uh, I, I do wish you well. Well, it's been lovely to talk to you, and uh, um, I hope Australia... Uh, come to like our new king as much as I think we're going to. We will, we will, that will, we will discover that in the fullness of time. Simon Heffer, thank you very thank much. You. Uh, Simon Heffer, bye bye. the author of um, uh, High Minds, The Victorians and the Birth of Modern Britain and the Age of Decadence. You might like to seek that out. Getting in touch with ABC RN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.